Good morning, morning. and welcome to our services here at Ivy Creek, and I am grateful for all of you who have joined us online this morning and for all of you who are here attending with us in person. You know, in light of um, all that has occurred in recent days uh, with our TV screens and our computer screens and our phones uh, filled with images of the, the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but then to the riots and to the violent reactions of those all across our country and even right here in our state and even right in our very backyard. Um, I'm sure that you, like I am, are grieved over what we see happening. Um, I know that hatred, and I know that violence, and I know that racism, and I know that injustices of all kinds are contrary to the very nature of God, and they strike at the very heart of the gospel. What I'm confident of is that from the very first sin that ever occurred that is recorded for us, in Genesis chapter 3, from that time, we have lived in a fallen world. And I am further confident of this fact, that the only answer we have for that fallenness is Jesus Christ. All of the Bible points us to the solution to sin that is found in Jesus Christ. And the more that we witness of troubled times, I believe the more that we are reminded that he and he alone can change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He and he alone can redeem lives and mend that which is broken. He and he alone has the power to save those who are lost. And what I want you to know is that the world could not contain all of the volumes of books that have been written about things for which I have absolutely no knowledge and no understanding. But there is one book, there is one holy book that has been written that contains the answer to the problem of sin and hatred and injustice and evil, and it is God's holy word. And I want you to know it reveals that Jesus Christ is King of kings and that he is Lord of lords. And it calls every man, woman, boy, and girl of every nation, of every skin color, of every creed, and of every tribe to come and to humble themselves before him because he alone is our only hope. And in moments like these, I know of no other place to turn than to his holy word and no other one to turn to than the one of this word, and that is the Lord Jesus. So would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Our Father, 
our hearts continue to be broken over what we see occurring around us. We know that I know I don't have answers for many, 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 many of the questions that are being asked. And I know that the brokenness that we experience and that we see grieves your heart as well. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, working through the power of your word, that you would bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. I pray even as we open our scriptures this morning and peer into the truth that is revealed about you and about ourselves in John 15, that your word would go forth and that it would accomplish exactly what you desire, and that is to see lives changed by the power of the gospel. I pray for healing. I pray for conversations to develop that would produce good results. I ultimately just pray that those that do not know you through the power of the gospel and have never truly placed their faith and trust in you would, through some of these very critical and crisis-filled moments, come to an understanding of their need of your salvation and that they would humble themselves before you and receive that gift of grace that only you can give. I ask that you use us as your church to be a light in a dark world, to be salt in a rapidly decaying world, and that you would make us the men and the women that you want us to be. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters that are here this morning. May you guide our hearts and protect us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn to John chapter 15. Uh, we're going to continue our study as we have been along the line over the last uh, month and a half or so, going through the lessons from the upper room. And now we move into a section here in, in chapter 15, a, a new section. In fact, some would even say that, that Jesus and his disciples have even moved to a new location um, the last words of chapter 14, you will read, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from here. And so many have even suggested that, that Jesus and his disciples actually left the upper room and began to go out on the road that would have taken them down into the Kidron Valley and ultimately into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, that may well be the case, uh, though it is still quite possible that they are actually still located in the upper room and have just moved from the table to another part of that room. I will leave that debate and discussion to others to uh, argue about amongst themselves. What is obvious to me is that there is a new and a, and a definite focus of what Jesus speaks about to his disciples here in chapter 15. As we noted in chapter 14 and our last two studies there, Jesus had been concerned with calming his disciples' troubled hearts. But here in chapter 15, the conversation deepens and, and, and Jesus moves from that discussion to describing how the deep and abiding nature of the spiritual bond that exists between him and his disciples would ultimately be the factor that would cause them to live fruitful and abundantly joyful lives. And brothers and sisters, let me just say to you that we must realize that what Jesus tells his disciples here on this eve before his crucifixion 
I want you to know it is just as true and it is just as applicable for you and for me today as it was for them. In fact, I doubt that I could overstate the importance and the effect that Jesus' words should have upon us, especially in times such as the ones that we find ourselves in right now. Now, we know what Jesus says here is important, number one, because these are among his very last words that he speaks to his disciples before he goes to the cross and ultimately before he would leave and ascend back to the Father. And so consequently, he is careful to leave his disciples with the most important words that he wanted them to know. And, and you, it is those choice of words that I want us to, to consider. You see, it is, it is significant that Jesus... What he had to say, he communicated what he says here through a number of, of words and a number of, of, of images that he repeats over and over again. And it's through the repetition of the word uh, picture that he, he presents for us as well as the words that he says. The repetition of those words indicate to us the significance of what he's saying. For example, the metaphor of the central vine with its many branches it's prevalent in, in almost every verse that we're going to read this morning. And, and correspondingly, the word fruit, it, it, it occurs six times in the verses that we're going to read. And then the word abide or remain, which is the same word in the Greek, it occurs 11 times in these 11 verses. In fact, it is the branch that remains attached to the vine and bears much fruit that Jesus points to in this passage. So let's hear his words and let's take them in and then let's consider them together this morning. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. As the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my, my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Now, as I mentioned, the metaphor or the allegory of the vine and the branches here, it's the dominant picture to which Jesus points in these verses. And, and consequently, it is the metaphor that we can 
uh, we begin to gain our interpretation. It's through that that we begin to gain our interpretation of this passage. You'll notice, you'll notice on your outline that I provided you an outline that is somewhat different from a typical outline that I would give you, that sometimes it's just one word and sometimes it's a, it's a statement. This is, this is an outline that I have developed that I think will help us get to the heart of what Jesus wants us to understand. And, and we'll do that by asking certain questions of this text. As we go through it, it's important, I think, that we ask questions of it so that we can gain that information. And then that information will continue to funnel us down toward the primary point that Jesus would have us to understand. So the questions that we're going to ask this morning are simply this. Who and what and how and why? Who, what, how, and why? Those questions will form the basis of our outline and our exposition. And the first question that I want us to ask is who? Specifically, who is identified in this word picture that Jesus uses? That's the first point on your outline this morning. Who is identified? And thankfully, at least to begin with, Jesus makes it fairly easy for us to understand who it is that he refers to in his metaphor. Notice the first subpoint there. Subpoint eight is, is he identifies the true vine, and the true vine is himself. Jesus says there in verse one, I am the true vine. Now, incidentally, this is the seventh, and it's the final statement by Jesus in the Gospel of John that includes those words, I am. And, and of course, we know that is a, a, a direct uh, declaration of his uh, divinity in which he equates himself with being God, who is the great I am of, of Scripture. And it was this claim here, though, that is important because notice that Jesus says that he, he didn't just say that he was a vine. He didn't just say that he was the vine. He said that he was the true vine. Now, why is that important? Why, why did he identify himself as the true vine? Well, in many places in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is depicted as a vine or as a vineyard. In fact, here's just a couple of references. There are many of them. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, we read, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and filled the land. We read also in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And listen, there are many other Old Testament texts where we find that Israel is referred to as a vine. However, we also read that Israel's vine degenerated and it, and it bore no fruit. And, and even when it did bear fruit, it bore worthless fruit. Jeremiah 2 verse 21, the Lord says this, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild? Isaiah chapter 5, verses 4, 5, and 6. The Lord says, What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have done, not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be burned, and break down its walls, and it will be trampled down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. You see, God had done everything to create a fruit-producing vine, yet Israel had been spiritually barren. So God took away the wall of the vineyard, and 
He left it unprotected and eventually Gentile nations trampled it and utterly laid it to waste and Israel was cut off as God's vine. Now, with that as the context, it makes what Jesus says here in chapter 15, verse 1, all the more important and all the more beautiful. You see, Jesus tells his disciples that in contrast to Old Testament Israel, he is the true vine. And by that, what he means is, is that he is the perfect and the final revelation of that which had been foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Furthermore, by using the word true, he's declaring that he will succeed where Israel failed. From him, good fruit will come. So that helps us understand the word true, and it also helps us understand why he calls himself a vine, the true vine. Because Jesus is clearly declaring that he is the source of life for the branches. Branches cannot survive without being attached to the vine because they do not possess their own life source. And so to know that, we know that Jesus is stating that He gives life. He gives vitality to the branches that remain attached to him. And that will become evident in just a moment when we look at those branches. But before we get there, notice the next person that is identified in this passage. The next one that we see here, subpoint B, is that we come to understand the vine dresser. And the second half of verse 1, Jesus begins by saying, I'm the true vine. And then he says, my father is the vine dresser. Effectively, what Jesus is saying is that it is the Father who owns the vineyard and it's the Father who takes care of the vines. And as the vine dresser, he's the one who cuts off the dead branches. He's the one that prunes the ones that bear fruit so that they will bear even more fruit. We're going to come back to those thoughts a little later. But what Jesus is indicating here is that his Father is the one who is in control of the entire process. And and as the owner of the vineyard, he expects fruit to be produced. And he does what he does because that is necessary for those branches to produce fruit. And that brings us then to the identity of the two different types of branches that are described in these verses. And those branches, there are some that bear fruit, there are some that do not. And and while there is some debate as to the identity of these Branches, based upon my current understanding of this text in light of the context in which Jesus uh, presents this metaphor, I understand that first set of branches to be this. Notice subpoint C. They are unfruitful branches, and I understand them to be false disciples. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is the vine dresser, the father, he takes away. Now, as I said, I have come to believe that these branches to which Jesus refers here are branches that do not bear fruit. They are those, they represent those people who may have a connection to Jesus. They may be those who even make a profession of faith in Jesus, but who nevertheless are not truly in union with Jesus. And the reason that I have come to that conclusion is because, well, it was only a short time earlier on that same night that Judas Iscariot had been dismissed from the fellowship that existed between Jesus and his disciples. 
Jesus sent him away. And the reason that the Lord sent him away is because Judas, he rejected Jesus' final appeal of, of love and in the process, he sealed his own fate as the one who would betray Jesus to death. Now, from all outward appearances, Judas would have looked like any of the other 11 disciples. But the fact was, is that he was never truly converted. In fact, when we look at that passage back in John chapter 13, we notice that Jesus said to all of his disciples in verses 10 and 11, he says, he who is bathed needs only wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. In verse 11, he goes on to say, you are not all clean. And Judas was the exception. He was the one who had never truly been bathed. He had never given himself over completely to the Lord Jesus, even amidst all of the time that he had spent walking the roads with, with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And as a result, as John MacArthur has written, there was only one difference between Judas and the other disciples. He would never bear any real spiritual fruit. And what I want you to know, as was true with Judas, so will it ultimately be true with all who are not truly attached to the vine, and that is the vine dresser will come and remove them. But notice the next group of branches that Jesus refers to there in verse 2. They are the fruitful branches. The fruitful branches. And, and those I recognize to be true disciples. Those branches which, which bear fruit, one has put it this way. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian is bearing as much fruit as they are able to bear. And it does not mean that they are a perfect Christian. But as one has put it, if you are indeed dealing with a true branch, every Christian will bear fruit. Now let me be clear. I am not saying that that is how one becomes a true branch. By bearing fruit. It's not through the production of fruit that you suddenly become part of the vine. Absolutely not such a thought may seem a little shocking though. I mean, after all, is it really all that important to God that we bear fruit? Is it really, is that really something that God cares anything about as if our life, after all, pastor, isn't, it, isn't the most important thing that we just come to a, to a place in our life where we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and isn't that really all that God wants from us is just, just that simple mental assent and acknowledgement that he is, he is God. After all, living the Christian life and producing fruit for the kingdom, well, isn't that really the responsibility of pastors and missionaries and, and Sunday school teachers and deacons and, and people that have really taken the next level of, of commitment to the Lord? Isn't that really what the scriptures teach? In other words, isn't fruit bearing optional? Well, I want you to know the Apostle Paul certainly didn't believe that that was the case. He never believed that the whole mission of the gospel was to see people saved in order to just watch them coast through life and never bear any fruit. In fact, he writes in that very uh, critical, pivotal point in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where we learn that fruit 
bearing fruit is not what saves us because he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. But then he adds this in verse 10 and it is critical that we recognize what he says there. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul certainly did not believe that there could be such a thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. He believed that the fruit of good works would naturally flow from one who had been saved by God's grace. But we don't only have to take Paul's word for it. Let's look back at our passage here in John 15. Because bearing fruit is so important to the vine dresser that he prunes the branches so that they will bear even more fruit. In fact, according to verse 2, the branches that bear fruit are pruned by the Father. They are pruned by the vine dresser in order that they may bear more fruit. You see the progression? You bear fruit, he prunes, you bear more fruit. And then look down in verse 5, the goal is for them to bear much fruit. Bear fruit, bear more fruit, bear much fruit. In fact, verse 8, Jesus says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, that, is, that gets us to where we need to be going because we've looked at the who of this passage. We've identified the ones that Jesus has identified. Now we can begin to zero in on the main theme of this passage, and that's the next question that we need to ask as we're working through here. What is Jesus getting at here? What's his main theme? That's the second point on your outline. And here's what I would say. The, the main theme of this passage is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. As I mentioned, according to this metaphor, Jesus uses to instruct his disciples the whole purpose of the branch is to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. In fact, Jesus says, as I said in verse 8, bearing fruit is the distinguishing mark of genuine discipleship. Now, at this point, we may wonder, what is it that he's speaking of when he talks about fruit? How are we to understand what fruit is? Well, we can go right here to begin with and say, well, fruit is true converts that come as a result of our testimony and our witnessing and our evangelism. Certainly we can say that. Uh, the gospel, as it is declared and goes forth, it, it, it does things, it, the, the Holy Spirit begins to work in people's lives and he, he convicts them, as I prayed earlier, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come and he begins to move in their hearts and they come to a true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and when those who we testify to and we witness to come to faith in Christ, we can certainly look at them and say those are fruits of the ministry with which we have been involved. Paul called them first fruits of his ministry. Jesus, even in John chapter 4, speaking to his disciples, told them to look out upon the fields because they were white unto harvest. And he said, he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. And certainly then we can say that converts are fruits. But I want you to also recognize that real spiritual fruit is also something that is produced within us. It's something that happens within our lives. It's not just something that happens out there. It's something that happens in here. As we noted from our study last week, when the Holy Spirit comes and he takes his place 
in our lives and dwells within us, he begins to conform us. He begins to mold us into the very image of Jesus and he produces a Christ-like character within us. In fact, that is the exact fruit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Brothers and sisters, we need this kind of fruit being produced in our lives and to see it being produced in the lives of those around us. We can also say that giving thankful praise to God excuse me, to God is, is fruit that is born in the life of a Christian. Hebrews 13 verse 15 tells us, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Furthermore, doing good, helping those that are in need, that too is a fruit that is produced in our lives. When, when the church in Philippi, when they sent money to the Apostle Paul to help him in the midst of where he was in the ministry that he was when he was in need, according to Philippians 4 verse 17, Paul called that the fruit that abounded to their account. Likewise, according to Titus chapter 3 verse 14, Paul urged others there to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. The Apostle Peter also points to the fruit that is born in the life of a Christian. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, we read this. Peter writes, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For these things are yours and abound, if they are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what becomes apparent when you read Peter's letter here is that the words of Jesus in John 15 had made a definitive impact upon him because Peter goes on to understand that, that fruitfulness was so important that he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10 of that same passage, for he who lacks all of the things that I just described to you, well, he is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Peter says that these are the fruits that should be born in the life of a believer if you are a true believer. And if you look into your life and you evaluate that you don't see these fruits being born in your life, then you need to perform a spiritual checkup and you need to make sure of your calling and your election. In other words, you need to make sure that your branch is truly attached to the vine that is Jesus Christ. So, Bearing fruit is critically important and we must wrestle with it. We must examine our lives to ensure that we are truly bearing fruit and that the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of being made in union with Christ are being produced. 
Now that's the main theme of this passage, I believe, and it brings us then to the next question that we need to ask of the text. And so the third question that I think when we get here, we have to ask, so how is it accomplished? How does... How do we bear fruit? What are we supposed to do in order to bear fruit? And here's what Jesus says. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abiding in Christ is the means by which we produce fruit. Notice again what verses 4 and 5 say. Here's really really the heart of this text. Verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit, Of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It's important to note that the only command given given in all of this passage that I've read for you, the only command occurs in verse 4. This is the imperative, abide in me. To abide literally means to remain. It means, in the context, it means to remain attached, just as the, the branches remain attached to the vine. And, and, and that's, what, that's the command that's given to us. Now, just think about that for a minute. Jesus doesn't command us to bear fruit. Did you notice that? That's not the imperative. The imperative is not to bear fruit. The imperative is to abide in Him. If we abide in Him the natural outflow of that connection to the life and the vitality of the vine will flow through us. It can't help but flow through us. And the implication is this. Fruit is not born by trying harder, working at it more diligently. You can't just think really hard and squint your eyes and Maybe I'll produce fruit. No, it comes from abiding in Jesus. In fact, notice that it is impossible, according to what Jesus says, for you or for me to produce fruit on our own. We can try to fabricate fruit by doing this or doing that. We might even fool ourselves into thinking that we've done something. We can certainly fool other people because they can't tell what's going on in here. We can do all kinds of stuff on the outside. But the fact is, unless we are truly connected to the vine, all efforts will be worthless and will produce nothing of eternal significance. I thought about it this way. You know, at Christmas we can get a tree. We do at our house. We get a tree and we cut it down and we put it into a, a bucket and we, we, we shore that thing up and we pour water in it so that it's still pulls up stuff, pulls up the water and to make the, the limbs still look like they're green. And then, you know, we've got some, some uh, uh, various things that we hang on that tree. And some of those are really real looking apples and, and, and pears that we can put a hook in and, and, and tie onto that tree. And when you stand back from that thing, it looks like a tree that's bearing both apples and, and pears. And man, it looks good. Uh, you know, Here's the fact, though. There is absolutely no life in that tree. And all the fruit that's tied onto it is fake. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You can have a life that looks all good from the outside and everything that's tied onto it is fake fruit. Jesus says here, unless we are truly connected to him, unless we are abiding in the true vine, we cannot. In fact, we will not 
produce any fruit that will last. Unequivocally in verse 5, he says, without me, you can do nothing. But Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we should ask, what's the difference? What's the difference between being able to do all things and to being able to do nothing? Well, clearly it is, it is being truly connected to Christ. As long as we are joined to the vine, as long as we are abiding in him, we can produce fruit. So here's the next question. What does abiding look like? What does that mean? Well, let's drill a little deeper. Because we learned back in chapter 14 that, that Jesus says both he and the Father will come and, and make their home in our lives. They will come and dwell in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that implies, as James Roscup has, has said, is that we are in a long-term, close, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And therefore, as Stephen Cole has written, he says to abide is to know Jesus as Savior and Lord and then to invite him, listen, to move into our lives and live there as the permanent Lord of all we are and do. And as he lives there, we don't do anything that would make him uncomfortable to be there. We let him clean out the garbage that offends him. And the longer he lives with us, the closer we grow to know and love him. You know, this week I, I cut the grass. One morning, it was still wet. I was anticipating more rain that we didn't get or I would have waited. When I got through, I didn't really have the opportunity to start to rain on me and I didn't have the opportunity to clean that mower up the way I wanted to. Tim is here somewhere. He will chastise me later. I put that lawnmower in my basement, in the unfinished side of my basement. Didn't think a lot more about it. Caroline looked at me yesterday and she goes, something doesn't smell good downstairs. I thought, oh, well, um, wet grass that has been allowed to uh, sort of hang loose on a lawnmower for about three days tends to not smell good in the house. And so it then became my responsibility to go in there and get rid of that. Listen, Jesus comes into our lives sometimes and he says, that doesn't smell good. That's not good for you. It, is, it, it offends me that this is part of who you are and it's time for you to clean that up and move that out. What, what abiding in Christ is, is giving him the freedom and the opportunity to come in and to clean us up where he needs to clean us up. In fact, verse 10 really describes what abiding is all about. He says, if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love. So bearing fruit, listen, that's the theme of this passage. And the only means by which you or I will ever be able to bear true kingdom fruit is if we are truly connected to Jesus, the true vine, and we abide him. Now it is right here that I want us to double back to something that I only mentioned briefly earlier, that, and that is the role of the divine vine dresser who comes in and he prunes the branches. We, we, we've already touched on it here. But again, notice that Jesus tells us that the Father does this so that the branch may bear more fruit. In spiritual terms, this is the process by which the Lord goes about removing 
that which is spiritually detrimental to the Christian's life. And as I mentioned, our old bad habits need to be stripped away. And our priorities need to be reordered. And our values need to be changed. And sometimes in the pruning process, the Lord even removes from us certain relationships and friendships and partnerships that hinder and, 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 and that form barriers for us to be able to advance the growing producing of more fruit. And here's the reality. That pruning process is painful. In fact, the writer of Hebrews clearly acknowledges how painful it is in Hebrews 12, verse 11. He says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, in the process of being pruned too, we can also become pretty self-focused. Because I could have decided, well, you know, I understand my lawnmower smells bad, but there's other things in this house smells bad too. And I could have started to figure out that there's things that you need to clean up too if you want me to go clean up my stuff. And sometimes we look around and say, God needs to be cleaning up somebody else more than he needs to be cleaning up me. But here's what I want you to know. As MacArthur has put it, when we look at other people and start fo stop focusing on ourselves, we must remember that the divine vine dresser knows exactly where to put his finger in our lives. And he knows exactly what we need. That's why James writes in James 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. For you know that it is the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that leads us then to the last question, and the last point on your outline today is just this. Why is all this necessary? Why is it necessary? Why is the pruning of the vine dresser necessary? Why is it necessary that we continue to abide in the vine? Well, Jesus tells us specifically why in verse 11. In fact, he says, this is the reason why I've told you all of this. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, abiding in Christ is necessary and the pruning of the Father is necessary so that we can have Christ's joy in full measure. Jesus wants his disciples to drink deeply of his joy. And as Warren Wiersbe has written, God has joined together abundant living and fruit bearing. And we cannot be joyful, satisfied believers unless we are bearing fruit. And then listen, God has also joined fruit bearing and abiding in Christ. And abiding in Christ must be united to obeying Christ. D.A. Carson has noted based upon verse 10, by imitating Christ's obedience, his disciples will be able to share in and drink deeply of his joy. Leon Morris, he has put it this way. It is no cheerless, barren existence that Jesus plans for his people. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't save you to just exist and to live defeated lives. He said, I came that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. But the joy that he speaks, of which he speaks, comes only from the wholehearted who are wholehearted in their obedience to his commands. And I would even say this to you, to be half-hearted is to get the worst of both worlds. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence, which is this. The more we abide in Christ, 
by loving and obeying him, the more fruitful we will be. And the more fruitful we are, the more joy we will possess. I believe that really sums up the what and the how and the why of this passage. The only question I have for you this morning is revealed by who do you identify with? What set of branches do you identify with? You see, it's very important. Are you a fruit-producing branch that's attached to the vine, or are you a branch that's not producing any fruit? I want you to know that such a question cannot be ignored because the stakes are entirely too high. You see, if you, pro- if you profess to be a Christian, but you aren't bearing fruit, then you need to reevaluate the relationship that you say you have with Jesus and make some course corrections in your life. The reason is because as we read in verse 2 and in verse 6, the branch that bears no fruit, well, it proves to have never been truly united to the vine. And Jesus tells us that the Father, the divine vine dresser, will come and cut away such dead branches and take them away. And Jesus says he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And then they are gathered, they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. As J.C. Ryle has written, so it will be at the last day with false professors and those who are Christian in name only and whose lives never produce any fruit because they were never truly connected to the vine that is Jesus Christ. He says their end, except they repent, will be destruction. They will be separated from the company of true believers and cast out as withered, useless branches into everlasting fire. And Ryle writes this. He says, they will find at last, whatever they thought in this world, that there is a worm that never dies and a fire that is not quenched. I pray that you will look intently into your own life today and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you come to recognize that you, if you do, that you have never truly been united to faith in Jesus, that there is no real and true fruit being produced in your life as a result of the true and abiding relationship that you have with him. I pray that you will not do one more thing before you humbly approach the Lord by faith and ask him to save you and to begin transforming you into his image. I want you to know the importance of our Lord's words here in this passage should not, no, they must not be ignored. If you would like to talk with a pastor about that, Ted and I will be in those, those rooms off to the side as you exit this morning. But if you're online and you'd like to talk, call the number that they will put on the screen. Call that number and, and leave a message. One of us as a pastor will get back in touch with you. We desperately want you to understand what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you have another spiritual issue that you would like to have one of us pray with you about. This is a way that you can do that. You are also welcome to use the, the spiritual response card, the, 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 the digital one that we have there. You're welcome to use that. For those of you who, who have trusted in Christ, the question simply is, are you bearing fruit for his kingdom? Are you joyfully submitting to the Father's loving pruning in your life? Are you daily abiding in Christ and making your heart his home? so that you may bear fruit and glorify the Father. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that that is the purpose for which Christ has saved you. 
And you and I must not settle for anything less. Brothers and sisters, this is yet another lesson from the upper room. And it is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy. We are grateful for your kindness to us. We're grateful for the fact that you desire to want to change us and mold us into the image of the men, women, boys, and girls that you want us to be. And I pray that we would give you all the freedom to be able to do that. I pray that we would not resist the pruning that comes into our lives, but yet we would recognize that you are seeking to produce great fruit in and through us for the kingdom. My prayer is is that we would abide in you, that we would continue to remain steadfast in that which we have learned and been taught, that our lives would remain consistent and, and constant with the gospel. I pray that it would do a marvelous work in our lives personally, but I pray that it would also do a marvelous work across our nation. We continue to pray for healing for our nation. We continue to pray for the gospel to go forth and to radically change lives. And we will praise you and give you all the glory for all that occurs. In Christ's name, amen.